From the hidden secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world, we take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. The Point Podcast is brought to you by La Point Foundation, offering healthcare, entrepreneurship, and education in rural Haiti. Visit lapointfoundation.org to find out how you can get involved. When I started international work in 2009, I was drawn to the world of caring for orphans. I mean, after all, isn't that what all good missionaries and humanitarians do? It wasn't until years later, after moving full-time to Haiti, learning the language, and acclimating to the culture, that I would find out that all of these kids who are in orphanages aren't really orphans. In fact, it's estimated that over 80% of those kids actually have parents who are alive, but it's due to financial burden and other complications that these kids are relinquished to orphanages. And this isn't just in Haiti, it's a global crisis. With hundreds of millions of dollars poured into undocumented orphanages every year, combating this crisis can feel overwhelming to say the least. But that is where partnership comes in. We don't have to do this alone. Today, we talk to one of those very special organizations that's pioneering the way to a more safe and just future for vulnerable kids around the world. Please join me in welcoming Brandon Stiver to the show. Brandon has worked in the child welfare and nonprofit sectors for over 10 years. Before joining One Million Home, he led a family-based care and advocacy program in Tanzania for several years. He's also worked in the California foster care system at various churches and teaches on issues facing at-risk kids at the university level. He has a master's degree in global development and justice and is passionate about the indigenous leadership, community mobilization, and seeing global entities come together and deliver the best care for at-risk children. This conversation today will take us all from a place of paralysis and, and feeling overwhelmed by all these stats and information into a place of strength and movement. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to meet. So I'm familiar with, um, I know you work with Child Hope, maybe a few other organizations. Yeah, we have a couple connections down there. But yeah, Child Hope is our, is our lead partner in that country. Very cool. So, so my personal experience seems to have a bit of overlap in yours too. And, and I would love to for the listeners to hear your story. But a lot of what I was doing early on was definitely like, let's go down and hold orphans and bring them Christmas presents and this type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, and it wasn't until I moved there and learned the language and like had been there for quite some time that I was like, whoa, this is yeah. not what's happening yeah. in the world. And then I kind of pivoted more to social business and we imported and exported artisan goods as a means to alleviate poverty job creation, orphan prevention, that type of thing. So I was connected to to Brian from America's Kids Belong, I believe. Yeah, Brian um, Mavis. Yeah, and so he mm -hmm. told me about you all, and I was like, what? This is so cool. Um, the world needs to hear about this, because I think that we want to do well. We're just miseducated. We don't understand exactly you sure. know, yeah. what this all means. And even myself you know, included, like being there, doing it, traveling, yeah. So yeah, the majority of our people work in some element of social justice. I think that this like family-based care, I feel like almost like no matter which part of like social justice you work in, there is this element of like caring for kids and like what exactly that looks like yeah. uh, because kids become adults. 
establishing success from early on is is helpful. So thank you, Brandon, for being here. No, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, great. I would love to hear... I know you have this like rich history of how you got started in this space. So I just love to hear your personal story and, and what that looks like and how you got to do what you're doing now. You know, for me, I grew up in the church and I was actually attending Meg in the early 2000s or mid 2000s in Costa Mesa. And I actually felt it was like a divine calling to go and run an orphanage in Africa was, was really what I felt. And I had not been to Africa. Um, I was going to a, to a faith-based university down there and kind of just pursued any opportunities for short-term missions trips or, you know, volunteering in, in Africa and got selected to go to work with a, I say work, quote unquote, work with a children's home in Tanzania. And um, we ended up going there. I started as a child sponsor once I realized, okay, we're going to be with this children's home. You know, I started sponsoring one of the kids, started to draw some of those kind of emotional kind of ties pretty early on. And once I went there in 2008, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, this is totally where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Went back to California where I'm from and just kind of started to tell really everyone, friends, family, whoever, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to go and work at a children's home uh, in Tanzania. I feel like this is what you know God is calling me to. This is what I feel like is the course of action for my life. Went back to the same city in 2009. Instead of doing the two-week trip, I did a two-month internship this time around and got to continue to build relationships with people in Moshi, including with that children's home. And it was during that time that the executive director said, hey, do you want to you know, come on staff? I had finished college at this point, just kind of looked at it and said, wow, like I'm stepping into my destiny, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I ended up moving there only a year and a half after graduating. I still had all my student loan debt. I still, you know, <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, you know, I just felt like, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so I moved there in January, 2010. And really just kind of brought up just a whole range of different events that it was almost kind of like, even though I was in my early 20s, it was almost kind of like a coming of age because Mm. all these different things kind of, there's like a confluence of all these different things that happen when you're suddenly in a cross-cultural experience and Mm -hmm. um, trying to live out your passion. January, 2010, I moved there, ended up spending two and a half years at the children's home working. And there's a lot with children's homes that, there can be a lot of corruption. There can be a lot of uh, issues. Uh, the children's home that I worked at was quote unquote good. Like there wasn't mm-hmm. any corruption. The leadership mm-hmm. was fine, you know, um, but started to realize even in that type of circumstance, uh, man, these kids need families. You know, um, mm-hmm. my wife and I um, uh, met uh, during a short term missions trip for her while I was living there permanently. We got engaged six weeks after meeting face to face. So that would wow. be a whole other podcast episode, <laughs> I suppose. A year later, we got married. So engaged in 2011, married in 2012, uh, or sorry, engaged in 2010, married in 2011, kid in 2012. And once we became parents, it was really evident like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a different type of relationship. Because I had kind of fancied myself as like, I'm a father to these kids. I'm a father yeah. to the fatherless. I'm a whatever, you know. Um, but once you have your own kid, you kind of realize, man, these kids are amazing. And these kids need moms and dads. Mm-hmm. But what I'm doing working at a children's home is not that. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of started off this really kind of um, mm-hmm. learning experience. And also kind of, uh, to a certain extent, unlearning, right? Um, yeah. And walking back some of those emotional ties that I 
thought I was developing, but really these kids were just needing properly attached parenting. They were needing family. And that's really, you know, the backbone of every society is is families. From there, um, we went back to the States 2013. I spent a year, over a year, living back in the States early in our parenting, but then returned to Tanzania and spent five years doing a family-based program. That's really kind of where I cut my teeth on pursuing better practice when it comes to um, supporting orphans, vulnerable children, at-risk kids, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we ended up doing that for five years, then went off our organization downsized. And we, um, we returned to the States. I worked in child welfare in California for about a year. Um, before joining One Million Home, which is where I work currently. So that's a little bit about my background and kind of what led me uh, to where I am right now. Yeah, that's awesome. So you've been um, with One Million Home for how long then? Over a year and a half. Over a year and a half. Okay. And tell us, tell us a bit about what you all do. Yeah. So at One Million Home, we are a global accelerator of small to medium-sized nonprofits that are well-positioned to affect family-based care change. We work in a sector, if you can call it that, around care reform. So essentially, there are models of care for children in any given country, including in the United States. If we have American listeners, there was a time when there were orphanages um, here in the U.S. And we still Mm -hmm. have some types of congregate care, but they're more around group home. If a child has to enter an alternative care setting, the default is going to be going to a foster family and so forth. But there was a time where those kids would just go to orphanages. So Mm -hmm. what led a situation where the United States was primarily uh, using orphanages to now being in foster family as kind of the default? Well, that was a care reform process, right? Um, And there continues to need to be care reform in the United States. Now, in a lot of countries like Tanzania or many other places, I know you have a background in Haiti, this would be the Mm -hmm. case there as well. They're further back and they're still over relying on residential models of care. What we need to see is those care models reformed, right? We need to see Mm -hmm. uh, more emphasis on uh, family-based care and community-based services. So that's kind of the space that we operate in. What we look at is there are organizations in these given countries, whether that's Kenya or Sierra Leone or Haiti or whatever, that actually have exhibited the ability to go from being an orphanage to being some other type of entity that will actually be family focused. And as other organizations within that given region or given country recognize the need to transition to family-based care, what we do is we build the capacity and accelerate those organizations that have already done it to empower other organizations to do the same within their given context. It's a bottom-up approach It's basically a lot of these policies are already aligning. Um, We had the UN General Assembly in 2019, which was a lot of countries coming around, pretty much every country in the world, basically, um, saying, yeah, we want to see kids and families. We have a lot of the, you know, alternative care guidelines from the UN, which have been around for over 10 years now. A lot of the big policy stuff is kind of already done, including at the national level. The problem is implementation. So that's why we look at these small to medium-sized nonprofits and say, how can we get behind you guys and build you guys up so that you can affect greater change uh, at the grassroots level? That's what we do. We operate in a community of practice model where organizations, they could be in Ethiopia, they could be in El Salvador, they could be in India, they could be in Thailand. 
where they have learned some things and they can share those things. And then we enhance their collaboration with one another and then release assets in an open source format. So that might've been a little bit all all over the place, but that's kind of what we do. Uh, In a nutshell, we accelerate best practice child welfare. I love that. Let's give some uh, foundation because we have lived in this environment for a long time. But for our listeners who might not be familiar, are orphanages and children's homes considered the same things? So for example, in Haiti, there's a stat that gets thrown around a lot that 80% of kids living in orphanages have parents that are alive. Um, so walk us through a little bit how how kids even get into orphanages, what a poverty orphan is, um, and all those kind of technical things. Yeah, absolutely. Orphanages and children's homes are often kind of used interchangeably. Um, children's home is a little bit euphemistic. It's kind of just dressing it up a little bit. It doesn't sound as bad as saying orphanage. There are difference in residential care models. So an orphanage is a residential model, right? So you have the kids there. There's not parents, but there's staff, you know, Mm -hmm. there is a spot for residential care. But unfortunately, what we see is there's an over-reliance on it. And whereas a lot of the policies might say this is supposed to be a last resort, um, Mm -hmm. in many countries, including Tanzania, where I was, it was really the first resort for a kid Mm -hmm. in a bad place. Is that just because Um, it's like easier? Like, it's just like, let's have a building and let's bring these kids in? Or what do you think like the reason for that is? It comes down to what services are being offered. For us, if we have a simplistic view of what the needs are for children, we will default to simple answers. And Mm. an orphanage is a simple answer. It's not that it's easier. It takes way more money to run a children's home. You know, it doesn't yield the same results, but it's a simple answer. There's different things that, you know, I could think through. And, you know, I do think that there's a tie to a little bit of ethnocentrism. Um, A lot of these children's homes are funded by Westerners. They may have some distrust of national and indigenous populations. So it's a little colonial in certain aspects. So where they think, you know, we're going to do a better job raising these kids in our funded orphanage Mm -hmm. than their poor parents could do otherwise. Mm -hmm. But essentially every government, including the U.S., relies on nonprofit service providers. So when I worked in foster care in California, I worked for a nonprofit. I didn't work for the the government of San Luis Obispo County, but the government of San Luis Obispo County, the state, Santa Barbara County, they relied on our organization to provide some services that they themselves were not able to do. And then there were government subsidies and so forth for that. So the services were actually family focused, they were community focused and so forth. The same thing happens in the global South. And forgive me, Callie, if I'm getting too technical here, but I do think it's an important question that you asked, where if we're only, if we're going into a situation and saying the solution that we're going to provide is residential care, Mm -hmm. um, and you get one person, two people, three people, you know, a dozen organizations that say, this is the service we're going to be providing. And then you look at these countries in the global South where they don't have the infrastructure and they're not going to be able to subsidize or fund anything. They're just going to go with whatever, whatever service is being offered to them. So we don't necessarily have organizations that are going in and saying, well, we want to strengthen families or we want to, Mm -hmm. we want to subsidize education costs for poor families, or we want to do any of these different activities that can actually strengthen the family and actually be a lot more cost-effective. We have people going into these high tourism areas, especially where they say the service that we want to provide is an orphanage. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not that it's easier, but it's a simpler kind mm-hmm. of mindset. That's- it's apply- it's misapplying a very simple solution to a very complex situation, if that yeah. makes sense. No, so, so good. I would just say it's not that it's easier. It's just that it appears to be more simple. Um, but again, the results are not great for kids that have grown up in orphanages. Yeah. And what's interesting too, and you touched on it briefly, is like the idea that what I was always blown away by was that I wouldn't move to like Austin, Texas and be like, I think that I'm going to take care of these kids and just yeah. like open a, a house, like literally rent a house and then start collecting children. Yeah. Simply put, I mean, you're right. Like with the lack of infrastructure in the developing world, there's not as much accountability. So many orphanages are not registered. Um, yeah. The kids many times don't have birth certificates. Sometimes the families understand that the kids are not going back home. Sometimes they think it might be like a boarding house or something like that. Sometimes they, it's not explained to them that the kids might get adopted and yeah. move to America. And so it's interesting to think about the idea, this ethnocentrism, where we might not do the same thing in Austin, Texas, but if we go to Ecuador, we're, you know, we're spending yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars to say like, oh, we should probably open some orphanages here. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting concept to think about. Yeah, no, it's 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 a very significant disconnect. And that disconnect plays out not only in starting those types of operations, but also visiting them. So in a similar way, if I was going to Austin, Texas as a tourist, I would say, oh man, I heard they got great barbecue down here. So I'm going to find the best barbecue joint, uh, you know, and I'm going to, I hear they have a great music scene. You know, I've never been to Austin, but this is stuff I hear, right? Uh, I hear. So I'm, <laughs> so these are going to be the things that I'm going to do as a tourist, right? Yeah. I wouldn't go down there and say, I'm going to visit a group home, like, you know, like, Hey, you know, I'm going to open up a pamphlet, you know, welcome to Austin, Texas. And then I'm going to be like, okay, cool. How can I visit a group home here? I wouldn't be allowed. Who am I? That would never be allowed. And yet in places like Moshi, Tanzania or Port-au-Prince, Haiti, you know, that's exactly what we do. We have to kind of rethink, well, why are we allowing this disconnect? Um, And why is it that the kids in these countries in some ways deserve less than what we would want for our own kids. Heaven forbid, if something were to happen to me or my wife, you know, my kids would go to their aunt or their grandparents or, you know, somebody, Mm -hmm. but somehow we allow these kids that even are in really difficult situations to somehow receive something less than what is best for them. And the best thing for every kid is to have a loving mom and dad that can help them, guide them, provide for them, take care of them, uh, Mm -hmm. attach with them, you know, help them process and regulate that's what every kid needs. So that should be the standard that we hold across the board, regardless of where the kid is. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. So do you think it's like a matter of just re-educating us as as North Americans and maybe like doing some backtracking on what we've been doing for the last 100, 200 years, especially in the like field of missions? Or where do you think is a good place to start and or where is 1 million homes starting? Yeah, well, I do think that education is is a big piece to it. As we've kind of wrestled through this within our team, I teach at a university. I'll use this as one example. When I taught my undergrad students, so this is, you know, 20-year-olds, about when we did a unit on children outside of parental care. And I just kind of talked with them and I said, you know, this is why 
we don't just want to start residential cares. This is why it's not appropriate to just go and visit orphanages on short-term missions trips. And as I talk through them with them, they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, these are 20-year-olds. They've spent the last year and a half in COVID lockdowns where they weren't doing any (laughs) short-term missions trips when they got to to the university. They're totally unencumbered. You just kind of help flip the switch and then they're like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. I shouldn't do that. I should find other ways to get involved and volunteer in an ethical way and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, if we allow, if people have been on that trip and they've had that emotional connection with a child, that is a lot harder to walk back because Mm -hmm. unfortunately we like to think that we can just educate and just reason with people and, you know, help them. They, They can kind of ascend cognitively to, yeah, I know family is better and so forth, but you know, mm-hmm. and then they kind of like, but we're the exception or, but this kid really yeah. is special to me. Yeah. You know, the kid that I sponsor or the kid mm-hmm. that I, you know, uh, visited, they really do need this. And I really am that for them, you know, so you kind of rationalize it. There's an example that I use often from a social scientist, Jonathan Haidt. He talks about a rider and an elephant. And when you see somebody riding an elephant, you think that's like the reason. So we think like, oh, my reason is leading me. I've been educated. I understand what the right thing is. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell this elephant to go wherever it wants. But that Mm -hmm. elephant is your emotion. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that elephant is going to go wherever it wants to go. It's an (laughs) elephant, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially once you arrive there, then you'll just kind of rationalize it Mm -hmm. and say, oh yeah, no, this is where I wanted to go. The bigger thing with people that have had these emotional experiences is really how can you help them process that mm-hmm. and change their mind. And for somebody like me, it took a few years, you know, mm-hmm. and some really big experiences, like actually living in Tanzania, being able to compare that to having a child. Like these are really big things that had to move mm-hmm. me emotionally That's to the point, point where I started to kind of learn like, oh, okay, now I can add the knowledge in. You know what I mean? So it's a challenge because you have to go after both. It's not just purely head knowledge. There also has to be that heart knowledge, which is actually in a lot of ways even more important. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what are some of the approaches that your organization uses? Is it re-educating? So, because you kind of almost have to have like two different things, right? Like you're actually doing the work on the ground, helping to kind of do some care reform, but then Mm -hmm. are you also having to convince is the wrong word, but are you also having to like have a mindset shift within the donor community and how does that work? We do need a switch within the donor community at large. And there are organizations that focus on that. We do that to a certain extent with us. We kind of are striking where the kettle is hot and really where the kettle is hot is like Kenya, you know, and like these other accelerators that we're working with in Sierra Leone and Uganda and Haiti. Essentially, there are organizations that are coming to this realization and we do within our community practice and One Million Homes specifically, we do work with boards like nonprofit boards to help Mm -hmm. them realize the importance of transitioning to family care. So that's kind of where we focus ours. We do need larger shifts in the community at large. And we have done like media and like, you know, we have a lot of media assets on our website for people to kind of get that education piece and kind of see like, yeah, there is a better way. Here's a story from Sierra Leone. Here's a story from Kenya. Here's, you know, kind of thing. 
we do that, but we need more of it. The Barna Group, along with Faith to Action, just recently released a study that was just focused on American Christians and how much money they put into residential care annually. Mm -hmm. And the number is $3.3 billion. With a B, for those of you that didn't hear. B as in Brandon. Yeah, B. (laughs) $3.3 billion annually going into residential Mm -hmm facilities. So it's it's a pretty big beast to kind of turn. So we do need that. What has been successful for us? I think we're still figuring that out in a lot of ways. We have been able to partner with some large mass engagement and some people that are well known, including for the faith-based community, you would know Francis Chan. So like he's mm-hmm. a partner of ours and we took him to Kenya and kind of showed him like, hey, this is what this looks like. And mm-hmm. so We have done some of that, you know, you Mm -hmm. find somebody that's trusted and you show them and then hopefully they can guide others. And I think that that's effective. Again, people will allow themselves to be the exception. So Mm -hmm. we really actually have to figure out more ways to kind of flip the switch emotionally so that people Mm -hmm. can start to come around. There are examples of donors, general donors, churches, Christians, non-believers, of course, that have started to realize, actually, you know what, I shouldn't do volunteerism at orphanages. Mm -hmm. You know what, actually my money, my donations will be better used somewhere else. Mm -hmm. We're we're like at the tip of the iceberg, it feels like, uh, when it comes to that particular piece. Yeah, that makes sense. As we mentioned earlier, share a similar story myself, and like, you're right, it's humbling. It's, it's it's good that you put that perspective to it, that like maybe we expect people's mindset to shift because we wrote a good blog, you know, and yeah, you're like, yeah. wait, these massive, like life-changing moments had to happen for each of us for us to really see the reality of it. And that included living in other countries, learning the language, developing relationships and putting our own egos aside. So that's a good perspective um, to keep myself, you know, humble and and listeners too, is like, wait, let's have some grace with people. Like, yes, this is an important topic. Yes, let's keep like doing the work, but also let's recognize sometimes it's not just as easy as a good blog post. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a lot. And do write the blog post, but that's (laughs) just one small piece, you know, or even some very compelling video. That can be great, but we need to keep chipping away at it because it's pretty big. Yeah. So give us an example because it's such a massive thing that that One Million Home does. And I'm sure it's a bit different per organization, but maybe we can like use an example. So like say organization, save the world's children, you know, exists in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And for the last 40 years, they've been an orphanage. They're sponsored by donors in the United States, and they're starting to say, wait a second, we want to shift this model of care. So they reach out to you. What what kind of happens next? Yeah, well, for them, they're in luck because we actually run an accelerator program in Haiti. For them, you know, there's some initial kind of like assets. So one of the things that we have is online learning. Um, okay. So if our platform journey home, would be able to give them some of that initial direction. Everything we do is free and open source. You don't have to pay for anything. People can go on there and they can actually just learn and just do like a six hour course from our partners in Kenya, just walking them through. This is what it looks like to reintegrate a kid. This is what it looks like to do family assessments. This Mm -hmm. is what it looks like to do social worker visits. This is because that's the main thing is that people don't even know how. Exactly. Like where do you even start? Yeah, exactly. So, and people need practical knowledge. Unfortunately, sometimes within our sector, 
people just kind of get bombarded with these really thick manuals. And it's like, holy smokes, I'm not even going to read that, you know, and oh, by the way, English is my second language, you know, or whatever. It's helpful to have somebody as just another indigenous leader that has walked through it before. And we work with multinational teams. So there are Americans as well, but, you know, walking through, we would get them plugged right in with journey home. as kind of like that passive knowledge that they can get in. But if they find themselves within an accelerator country like Haiti, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we could actually get them plugged into an organization that actually has already gone through the transition. They know the policies of Haiti. They know what it looks like to work with boards, what it looks like to work with the government, what it looks like to reintegrate kids safely, which in Haiti right now, that's a challenge because of all the tumult, the turmoil that's there right yeah. now. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very difficult context. But nonetheless, we could get them connected with somebody that's going to actually just be able to walk them through the whole process. And those services are provided free for charge because we do that in partnership with them and subsidize everything that happens in the, in the country. So you could actually get somebody to walk you through through the entire process. This is how you change your organizational structure. This is how you reunify kids safely. This is how you scope out what you want to do next. There's another term that's used um, within this sector called deinstitutionalization. Fortunately, sometimes deinstitutionalization has just been taken to mean just shut them all down. Mm -hmm. We actually, for orphanages that were started in good faith and have decent leadership, and decent funding to be able to continue operating, we want Mm -hmm. them to continue to work um, Mm -hmm. because there is such a lack of services in a given country that it would be great if you could transition your children's home and say, actually, now what we're doing is we're providing low cost preschool for Mm -hmm. our community Mm -hmm. or or actually we're right next door to a health clinic. So we're going to use our facility to expand what they're able to do. You know, those types of things like healthcare services, education, social services, these types of things strengthen families. So what Mm -hmm. we want to do is we want to see, can you transition to being something else that's going to actually strengthen families and communities? If you're in one of these countries, including Haiti, um, you could actually get connected with somebody that could walk you through. Um, what that looks like. It is a longer process. I could give you some super long manuals if you wanted to read them. I won't bore your listeners with that, but there are processes and it is important to do this diligently mm-hmm. and to do it safely because we're talking about child protection. We're talking about child welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, these kids deserve for us to do things, not only to do the right things, but to do them the right way. Mm, yeah. So good. I love that. We should talk a bit about like why, I guess, why it matters again for us, like being in, you know, in this like sector, we've seen it. It makes sense. Um, we've heard, you know, statistics about unplanned pregnancy, gang involvement, drug mm-hmm. use, suicide, etc. But I think maybe for people who this concept is new to, let's talk a bit about why it matters for kids to be raised in a family environment. Yeah, I mean, that is really kind of the basis of all of this, because if we could just raise a child wherever and they'll turn out okay, then yeah, an orphanage would be totally a viable option. But people are not cogs in a machine. People are people that have emotions and have uh, intelligences. And uh, there is a need for development, especially in regards to children. And um, unfortunately, when a child passes through adversity, that has a very detrimental effect on who they become as adults Mm -hmm. and who they are as children. When kids have gone through any type of separation, that right there is, is traumatic. It's important that we 
kind of think through, you know, how can we get this kid back to family? Whether you are a religious person or whether you are not, even however you define family, pretty much everybody is going to recognize that this is the most natural place for a kid to grow up. Kids don't just crawl out of the ground and say, I'm a street kid or I'm an orphan mm-hmm. or kids like mm-hmm. come from somewhere. And the yeah. most natural place for them to be is with their family of origin. Mm-hmm. And there are instances where kids cannot safely return. So we have to look for alternative family options like adoption or long-term foster care or other forms as well. Those being the foremost, but kids need for healthy development. They need to have attachment with at least one primary caregiver. Um, Mm -hmm. This is from years and years of research uh, going all the way back to like the mid 20th century with John Bowlby made his recommendation to the World Health Organization in like 1950 something that orphanages are not a good place for kids to grow up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're talking like 70, 80 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so kids need attachment. Kids need parents to buffer them emotionally and help them regulate Kids need somebody to advocate on their behalf uh, when it comes to getting other important services like healthcare and education. And all of those things are best done in a family. Mm. And for our listeners, you know, we could have some care leavers um, that are listening, people that exited care and they feel the full brunt of um, not growing up in that environment or being separated from that environment for at least a part of their childhood. But most of the listeners are going to recognize, well, I grew up in a family. Why wouldn't I want that for somebody else, right? Mm. And families are not perfect. There could be any number of different issues in the family. Nonetheless, it is the best context for a kid to grow up. And if there are issues in that family, it should still remain to be the context for that child to be assisted, if that Mm. makes sense. So I guess that would be some of the reasons why it's important. And again, we would want this for our own children. And we should want that for other kids as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So if people are listening and this is striking some heartstrings and they want to get in touch with you, maybe start a conversation, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, you can reach out to us at hello at onemillionhome.com. So that's the number one millionhome.com. You can also find us online. You'll find uh, a lot of those assets if you were to kind of, if you just wanted to learn more or um, see some of the videos, media assets that we've developed to for you to learn more or for you to communicate with your friends and social circles. You could just find that on our website, just kind of scroll to the bottom and hit Media Hub and you'll find a lot of that information if you just want to learn more. Um, there's other ways for people to plug in. You know, for some people, they say, you know, I've been given to this children's home for years, yeah. but, you know, I kind of feel like it's it's run its course, or I talked with them about family care and they're not moving. And, you know, if you want to switch who you're giving to, there's ways to do that. Man, I spoke with one pastor, her and her church were supporting an orphanage in Haiti and they realized, oh, this orphanage is trafficking children. So for them, it was like, okay, who can we support instead? You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they actually got connected with an organization from our community practice based in Uganda that's doing fantastic work, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, it can even just be like, you know what? 
I got 25 bucks, I got 50 bucks. I want to give that towards something. So there's ways to just give directly to our partners just through our website. We focus on collective impact. We subsidize a lot of activities for our partners, but we're not a foundation. We're just a capacity builder. So we get people mm. connected with technical advice. We, we build a relationship. We enhance collaboration. We provide direct support for cases that help kids get back into family. We have direct services in Kenya. It's really, um, you know, we want people to, when the lights come on, we want to have a quick and easy way to connect. So people can just do that through our website. You can hit partner with us. You can check out the media hub and you can learn more. Perfect. I love it. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes as well. I always like to kind of wrap up the conversation with asking if there's one thing you wanted listeners to take with them, what that, what that would be. Um, but before I do that, is there a, a particular story or moment that sticks with you um, from throughout your years of, of this type of work that helps to keep you motivated on doing what you're doing? Oh boy. Yeah, there are stories. I certainly think back to my time living in Tanzania for several years and the work that we were able to do there. There's a few stories from that time that are just, that are just fun. And uh, with all of these, it's not like, oh, then, then, you know, there was a rainbow that showed up over us and the kid was <laughs> lived happily ever after because I wish it was, these, like, I wish it was like that. <laughs> um, it's not a Disney fairy tale, but there are stories where it's just like, wow, okay, yeah, mm. for that kid, it turned out better. So I'll just share one story from there. Awesome. I was running an organization. Uh, we had a team there in Moshi, Tanzania. Our organization was called Kingdom Families. We had a relationship with a particular children's home that knew that we provided family-based services. It became known, interestingly, um, a boy that had left the orphanage came back one day and saw one of the new intakes. And he kind of looked at him. He said, well, what is he doing here? And the orphanage director said, oh, well, no, he just came from the Department of Social Welfare and he's an orphan. This is the story. And then this boy who had left care, but was just coming back uh, for a visit that afternoon said, that's not his story. I've, I know this kid. He's from the same neighborhood as me. Mm -hmm. So the orphanage director started to look into it and then contacted us and said, hey, you know, we might have a kid that is kind of here under false pretense, um, which is very, very common. So we started to look into the situation. The kid had been taken to the Department of Social Welfare and the grandma said his mom is a prostitute. His dad is dead. Um, I'm the dad's mom, but I have cancer. And, you know, it's just kind of this whole story and, and we need him to go to an orphanage because again, even though the policy in Tanzania says it's a last resort, it's actually often a first resort. So this kid went from being with his grandma to uh, the department of social welfare and then into an orphanage all in one day. doesn't mm -hmm. sound like a last resort. It mm -hmm. sounds like a first resort, mm -hmm. but um, at any rate, as we kind of looked into the program or looked into the case, we started to say, well, okay, if there's a potential that this isn't true, you know, what can we do? We found out, okay, yeah, his mom is still in the area. The dad is not dead. So like parts of the story weren't true. Um, anyways, long story short, we get the kid back into the community and we're providing family-based services. And the kid, you know who the kid ends back up with? With the grandma that took him to Department of Social Welfare. Okay. The thing that she said to us after we were working with her. So we started, there was a preschool nearby where it was like $3 a month yeah. for the kid to go to preschool, right? That's something that strengthens. We help the kid get a birth certificate and very affordable health care 
and kind of all these things that kind of strengthen the family mm-hmm. that for us as an American funded organization was like nothing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just so cheap. So we start to work with this family. And uh, at the end of it, the grandma says, well, if I knew that this type of service was available in Moshi, I would not have lied to the Department of Social Welfare. Think about that story. And I'm just like, man, if we could just get more people that just say, hey, we're going to focus on education or we're going to focus on healthcare, we're going to focus on something else. Like we're going to have more kids that don't go into the orphanage in the first place. Mm. Um, And that's really what we want to see. So that would be uh, that would be one story among many uh, throughout partners uh, that are in lots of different countries. But that's just a personal story from what we were doing in Tanzania. I love that, how it came full circle too. Yeah, yeah. Um, What is one thing you would want listeners to take with them today? That kids belong in families. If you uh, have kids in your life, um, find out what they need and Mm -hmm. find out how you can play a role. If it's a kid that's separated from family temporarily and they need a foster home, maybe look into becoming a foster parent, you know, just to help that kid while they're in a time of transition. You know, if you uh, are a part of a church or a faith community and you guys have outreach or other things or student ministries or what have you, uh, find out ways that you can plug in and just help kids, just help kids and and help them be stronger in their families. I'm a man of faith and, you know, I read a lot in scripture that talks about orphans and widows, right? So what is that? That's fatherless children and single mothers. Mm -hmm. Find a single mother um, in your community who might be having a hard time and buy her groceries, you know, do, mm-hmm. do something to, to support children, to be in families, do something to um, support vulnerable women that are raising these kids and do that globally um, as well. Do it locally and do it globally and, and make sure that your giving actually matches that as well. So that's what I would love for people to walk away with. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Randon. Yeah. Thanks, Callie. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. To get in touch with Brandon and find out more information about what we talked about, you can visit 1millionhome.com. That's one as in the number one, not O-N-E. So 1millionhome.com. And you can also access the free training mentioned in our discussion today at 1millionhome.com slash journey home forward slash. You can also listen to further conversations at the Think Orphan podcast, and that can be found on all streaming platforms. And you can find them on all social media at One Million Home. As always, all relevant links will be found in the show notes at thepointfoundation.org. I hope you learned a lot today. I know I sure did. And until next time, keep on fighting for justice.